This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Communist Poland had universal conscription and the armed forces were huge by contemporary standards. The Polish People's Army, Navy and Air Force had just over 400,000 troops for most of the 1980s in a country of 36 million. Tom was a conscript in the Polish People's Army from 1987 to 1989. He served as a radio operator in Legnica for the rocket artillery. His service was at an interesting time when the communist dominance ended as Poland began to embrace democracy with its first free elections since before World War II. Tom shares details of his conscription process, selection and initial training. We also hear of training exercises, attempts at political indoctrination and his role if the Cold War had ever turned hot. I'm very keen to expand our library of Warsaw Pact voices, so if you know of any other English speakers who served in the Warsaw Pact forces during the Cold War, do let me know. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hello there, my name is Mark Franks and I served in the Royal Air Force from 1982 through to 2007. What I find fascinating about Cold War conversations are the stories and opinions of those that lived the other side of the Iron Curtain over that period. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Tom to our Cold War conversation. You were 17 years old, and usually this process was organized together by your school and a local conscription office, uh, let's say, which is military, you know, unit. So it was like one place, uh, usually in a town, when from all schools, you know, all the 17 years old lads uh, gathered together, and there were several, you know, desks with uh, military, you know, people. How how was your role selected? I mean, what, how did they assign you to your role? First, on the 
registered, and I said, in 70s years old when it happened. And it was like interview uh, as well, because they asked your hobbies, interests, and stuff, and where would you like to serve? So uh, I said, because I was already young radio amateur, my dad was electrician, qualified electrician, and radio engineer, and radio amateur. So we had like family tradition. And I thought, hmm, I would like to, if I have to serve, uh, this is something I would enjoy. Because uh, instead of going like, you know, infantry or artillery, or something, it's not my really, I don't like it. So I said, if if I'm going to spend some time in army, yeah, I didn't know if I get to uni. If I wouldn't get to uni, I would serve two years proper. So I thought, hmm, okay, uh, so let's at least serve in the branch I really like, you know, that kind of my hobby, you know, corresponding. There were some questions. Uh, they were checking your medical records, and they used to give you, let's say, health category because uh, in Polish army there were several health categories uh, you were just uh, ready to serve or just not really capable of serving in army there were three categories a officially army had to do like uh, targets you know cons in conscription so in the end they didn't really take this in consideration if you a1 or a3 you were going to the same to the service so it was just one day experience you know you were in this let's say high school college age and when you were registered and then you were excited because uh, as a result of this you were issued with uh, army book military service pass uh, as uh, some countries name it but anyway it was little green uh, smaller of a passport but a green book then at a year of 18 next following year those who were not in education anymore were conscripted myself because i was uh, still in the education i was uh, aspiring uh, to higher education uh, university so you were like postponed for one year till you finish your uh, secondary, secondary education. Once you finish your secondary education, there were like two ways. If I want go to university, I would serve in the army as a regular conscript. Or because I was about to go to uni, so there was uh, six months service in the summertime in kind of cadet, like NCO, for specialized soldiers. I mean specialized, you need like uh, radio staff, some other, you know, branches of army, which were very sophisticated because they were aiming for draft people who had some knowledge, some education. So I did this six months like uh, school or something. And then you were allowed to go to uni. In a uni, you had like every week few hours of class where you going and then you were like shooting and we would not never cons consider ourselves as a regular army because we always were students you regular army used to call us peasants 
you know, like birds with, you know, because we were, our students, they not really professional army, but uh, to be honest, we uh, we did loads of calculations, uh, operating uh, these computers, early computers, you know, army or something. So, but they will never consider us as a student, uh, as a, how to say, mincemeat for the front line. Yeah, what we'd call cannon fodder. Yes, 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 exactly. Uh, it was just like kind of um, living in between two worlds, uh, regular, proper, you know, conscript army, which were harsh conditions, uh, uh, loads of trainings, drills, and then you we had more slack terms, uh, easy easier terms, uh, not such, not such discipline, because it just like oh we were serving it was mandatory serving anyway, but oh they never gonna be a serious army. They they reading books, uh, you know they softies. But on the other hand, we had loads of jobs within, you know, when there was like uh, field training, po polygon, we used to call it. Uh, when you go into the field train, you know, uh, with regulars, we had lots of uh, very important jobs to do. Like, you know, some, I remember some guys doing uh, coordinates from they were students of maths or something physics, but they have to coordinate with rocket artillery proper, you know, and stuff you know, on this army computers. Uh, I was in radio comms. At some point, they were really dependent on us, but we didn't get lots of, let's say, bollocking or harsh terms from regular NCOs, let's say, like proper corporal, you know, standing on uh, other troops, uh, because they were never considered as uh, army material, let's say, this way. Yeah, you were never intended to be in the front line. You were supposed to be working the technology and some distance behind the lines, I guess. Yeah. And I think the most bizarre was when we, on year two, we met because, you know, instead of like you have in uni, uh, summer break, uh, on year two, I've met uh, guys from medical uni, future doctors, and they were completely lost there. There was different world for them, but they were serving as uh, medical staff, but not, not senior. And they were completely lost with discipline, with this uh, routine, uh, just completely unused to it. But... Uh, they were the most cherished, actually, part of the uh, uh, field camp because they could prescribe uh, funny, ta let's say, funny tablets, or they could pre they could organize uh, pure spirit from the laboratory. So they were most cherished guys, you know, because they had power of <laughs> making it e easier to, to to for these harsh conditions. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. 
Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From what you were saying there, it sounded like with university that you had some form of military classes when you were at uni. Yes, but it was uh, like stamp on this intellectual class. You need to know your place within this ruling workforce class. I don't know, you know, it's typical communist system when uh, all intelligentsia has to know its place. A kind of bootstamp on your, you know, aspiration that in the end, you know, the, you know your aspiration doesn't matter. It's what matters is uh, our joint effort and standing against NATO and, uh, you know, capitalism and stuff. Instead of going on lecture about sociology or philosophy, you had as well one hour and a half a week to three hours lecture. And lecture was about politics, about socialism, and about how it's better. It was part of military, you know, service, but in fact, but in reality, it was political stuff. We didn't learn much about military. We did learn about politics, why West is so evil, why we should stand together, and all this, I would say, bollocks. No one believed this, you know. We were, you know, laughing, well, not openly, but, you know, everyone just uh, just looks and, you know, I think no one took it seriously. But I think it was the time, the most, I would call it, waste of my life. The most, And everyone knew, everyone had the same feeling. It was absolutely a waste of time. But good thing was when we had a lecturer who didn't believe the same. He was what we was, you know, so he, he was on the same side like we are. So at least it was gone quick. And uh, But few on many occasions, unfortunately, we had some believer, let's say. These people are like opportunists uh, to show you you power, you know, for them the from beginning, you know, in these lectures, we were like let know that we are nothing to them. We just students. So we were this useless class intelligentsia. You know, I mean in the you know, in the terms of social classes. Uh, we are intelligentsia, so we are useless. Where did you receive your military radio training? Uh, I was granted to go to this NCO school not far from my uh, where I live, which was 10 miles away only. It was only two in Poland, another one in the other side. Usually you get ticket to army and you go to the other part of Poland, you know, because there was tactics, you know, to break uh, connection with families. So they said, okay, close enough. You, you could go there. You, you mentioned earlier that NATO was still considered the enemy. So was the training with a view to offensive actions or was your training uh, purely defensive at this point? Regular military training when you have shooting and uh, drill, you know, on a, on a field, it was more defensive. But... Then sudden change when you had classroom with radio comms. Then it came really like uh, encryption, uh, your communication, and structure, how you communicate. 
and it was offensive, really. It was orientated towards West. I mean, uh, there were concentration of units, uh, military units, uh, tank groups, and uh, armored, you know, infantry regiments uh, along the West border, uh, ready to go to East Germany. Uh, I think it was like second wave or something, and we were new, but it's gonna be like a second wave about uh, structure and discipline of communication, how you know to communicate. So, two things. Uh, basic military training was officially defensive in case of stri nuke strikes, but your professional training, when you, you know, on your job, what you're supposed to do, was rather offensive one. Actually, we were told we were on the second line of defense or offense. Because I think the, some of the Polish forces were earmarked for Denmark. Uh, I live in uh, Silesia, you know, southwest. So we were actually uh, marked for Thuringia, Hessen, this area, you know. Uh, if we were, find ourselves, you know, serving in this armored armored infantry units or tanks units from southwest Poland. We would go as a relief forces for Russian units stationary already in Saxony, in, you know, and who were already in uh, moving to the Thuringia Hessen or Bayern, you know, uh, this area, uh, like on second wave in following were you given much weapons training at all? Did you just did you was your training very different to what uh, a fighting soldier would would have, or was there some weapons training? Basic mandatory was uh, AK forty seven, uh, but well, it wasn't forty seven. It was uh, because they were new at the time. Well, we I. We recognize this new AK-74. We AKM or AKMS. Can't remember. There was folding uh, stock. Uh, this five point point forty five millimeter. They, they were quite fresh uh, uh, in uh, army because they were quite small, smaller than you know regular one. So we were issued uh, the first, and we were you know learned to shoot, which is just. On the beginning, two days really, and then a uh, shooting range. And the uh, shooting range was awful because kick was quite strong, and not everyone used to, you know, so we had all these, you know, shoulders quite bruised. And aiming or something, it, it was badly really on this. Sorry for if I call it wrong, but it was. A short one version of uh, AK-74 version. Then, um, yeah, pistols. It was P-64, which was really... You you could just shoot from 10 meters, you know, uh, away, and you had 50-50 chance you, you hit target of, I don't know, Titanic. They were so inaccurate, you wouldn't believe. Uh, bad, really bad weapon. But because of our job's role, we supposed to have uh, the, sh the short weapons, not long one. I mean, uh, not proper one. And throwing grenades, obviously, uh, training, you know. 
and pretty yeah and anti let's say gas or radiation this uh, rubber like uh, suit jumps i mean they were really awful and because we had to do some uh, even distance you know running in this people were really nearly suffocated and this was the the worst training I, as i remember when you had to just run some distance uh, with already smoke screen and this tear gas just to make you impression that you have to cover this field uh, and on time and uh, dressing up dressing off this suit and I'm not talking only about gas mask it was full you know cover shield so it was one of the worst I remember but uh, basically we had mandatory on short weapons I mean I'm I'm fire arms and uh, just grenades no we didn't get any uh, other uh, more sophisticated like infantry stuff so your your role would you have been mobile in an armor personnel carrier or something? On most occasions, I was a, like BMP, uh, one of the BMP converted to the comcom uh, stuff, uh, loads of communication stuff. But on two occasions, uh, on other other year, I was in proper one. It was like truck with like armored protection you know uh, inside like regular truck looks like you know but on the back instead of flatbed you have built up uh, this armored you know chamber with full loaded with communication stuff and it used to tow trailer we used to tow trailer with uh, another one like chamber or there were different uh, different trailers uh, one trailer had, you know, communication uh, because, uh, let's say, short waves, uh, ultra short waves on diff- different frequencies. But as well, uh, trailers had uh, antenna systems. So our truck used to tow antenna system behind uh, for the communication. You know, we unfolding and setting them up inside. Loads of radio station on different, uh, working on different levels plus uh, some encryption stuff. It was modern. It was quite new. And there was really a big deal. I think it was new in the army. You know, uh, just like early computers. How was the encryption done? Did you say it was done via uh, computer technology or did you have code books as well? They were code books. But uh, because I was on radio up on uh, shortwave, ultra shortwaves, and I wasn't team of the encryption, so I don't know exactly process because we were separate. We were not supposed to know, but I gather because I, I, I saw what's there and how they're working. It was still analog process in encrypting, but computers were like to shorting uh, process, uh, do calculations some calculations for them. Uh, I was receiving messages encrypted and I had to uh, record them and pass to the encryption team and vice versa. And did, were there still political officers in the Polish army at this point? Oh, yes, yes. So for every company had one. 
on company level. I can't remember if it was on platoon level even. No, I don't think so. But company level, yes. We had the political officer, uh, the old ones, and they were, yeah, as I said, opportunities, believe it. And they, I didn't like them because they, they couldn't cope with changes in the world. You know, late 80s, it was started with globalization and stuff. And they felt like really frightened by the West. You could see with them, they couldn't cope with reality. Uh, so I'm glad they didn't have any influence of this red button, you know, to start the war because it was just like they've noticed changes uh, in, in society, uh, how things progress, but they couldn't really uh, accept this. They they were like, uh, we're going to show them. You know, in the end, we're going to show them. I mean, we're going to show West, you know, superiority or whatever. Uh, so, And there were young chaps, typical opportunities, you know, sometimes after fresh after military school, they were trying to fraternize with us, uh, to talk easy, easy talks. Uh, organizing even, you know, vodka, alcohol. Oh, guys, we're going to organize. I'm going to organize. I have these uh, uh, connections with, you know, style and with logistics. With... But I bet that all of them, they were as well uh, secret police agents. Uh, how to say? Uh, in Poland, we had the category tiny współpracownik, which means secret co cooperator with secret police. So a collaborator and informer. Informer, yes. The secret informer. Oh, that, that's the best description. So, uh, and I bet uh, all, every political officer had, had to sign this contract for being as well a secret informer. So, and we knew this. Well, most of us knew it. We didn't want really to, you know, banter with them because... You just slip your tongue or something, and you didn't know what consequences could be. And I was still not fin my uni was not still finished. I was I wasn't graduate yet, so it could affect my gradu you know process of graduating. Uh, so no one want to you know risk career. So uh, yeah, they were political officers, but uh, they had good influence of regular conscripts from uh, those guys, young guys, 18 years old, who just finish uh, basic education uh, with like some, you know, uh, educations. So they were just like role models, let's say. In my uh, team, we all were, let's say, newly graduates. So uh, of some background, some education, some knowledge. And to be honest, all of us, all of us, like single one, we despise this system, and we're anti-army. To be honest, we had to, because we were serving because we had to. But everyone, as I remember, would just like drop the uniform instantly as you know the gates close, you know barrack gates close behind you. It's it's nothing to do with patriotism. It's about when you're serving oppressive system, you try to just strip yourself of this, all these ranks. For that reason, I have no uh, pictures uh, from my time in uniform. 
what I was running you from. But I really dis I really didn't like it. Uh because you were part of the system. Really, you really didn't like it. For people I think in the West it's very difficult to understand because serving in the army is quite patriotic. You 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 dedicate yourself for your country. But in in time, what I was doing, it was quite opposite. You are, in fact, you are doing your time in army, being against your fellow, you know, citizens, fellow people. Because army was one of the uh, way to oppress country. Were you ever worried that you would be ordered to? I don't know, stop a demonstration or, or something like that? Uh, not at the moment when I was serving. Uh, reason, it's reason why, because uh, already uh, police, militia, Obywatelska, uh, developed quite strong forces to uh, oppress uh, all this civil unrest. Uh, in the beginning of the 80s, they had no such big forces, I mean, uh, in terms of numbers. Uh, ZOMO, uh, which was special uh, police, uh, police military. It's like a paramilitary unit within the police, the ZOMO, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And they were quite in the 80s when Solidarity broke up. Uh, they, were, they were not big enough to suppress, you know, they were just fresh. So on that occasion, uh, quite a lot, quite uh, authorities were used army for this job. But in uh, since uh, Jaruzelski introduced uh, this curfew on uh, 1981, uh, this Zomo forces were really expanding quite a big so in when I was serving in eighty seven, eighty eight, uh, Zoma was so big they could cope themselves with any let's say unrest, any protest. So army was like standing away, you know even army uh, army generals didn't want to get involved anymore with political, you know, movement. They tried they pretend that army is uh, not politically involved in the Polish affairs. Uh, it's neutral. It wasn't it it wasn't true, uh, because on every level we had this polit politrucks, I mean polit political officers, we were still uh, you know, learning how to cope uh, with NATO strike or how to counter strike to NATO. We still about leading uh, were taught and reminded about leading a way of Communist Party, PZPR. So, in fact, they were not neutral, but they pretend for the society that they are neutral. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. 
important to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Were you in many exercises? I mean, obviously you would have been practising all the time, but as far as a, a big maybe Warsaw Pact exercise, did you ever participate in anything like that? I think I missed one. Uh, it was uh, one in 88. Uh, we had field days. I had two, nearly two months in the eastern border, you know, other side of the uh, country, uh, near Soviet Union border, damn time, uh, Brest, Terespol. So I could tell you that all this, how to say, feeling, uh, how you were uh, doing this uh, field exercises was completely different. Uh, it was, you had this impression that Big Brother looks at you. And officers, NCOs, they were act completely different. We had more serious uh when we were doing in our region, you know, field exercises, it was like easy going. Uh, okay, we had some field walks and then setting up uh, comms stations, you know, uh, masking and encryption. It wasn't set time. It, we we had in our time and distances were not so big. Well, I thought, but then following year, my last year, just before I was. We went to this, you know, east part. It really, we had like two kilometers to Soviet Union border, and we could see Soviet, you know, uh, I think border soldiers or something, or patrolling border. Uh, so it was so close, and instantly on the first night, twenty mile walk with full equipment on the back. Which when we we were not used to, but because no one was so crazy when you know last year or so you know in our, but now suddenly uh, let took it all serious. Uh, second night again twenty miles plus setup camp and uh, completely camouflage and hidden you know some uh, relay point. I mean relay communication relay uh, and. Third night was again somewhere in the fields, in a just boggy terrain, uh, marshy boggy terrain. Uh, I think to intercept some uh, communication we were setting up against it. So it was suddenly it was serious, you know, with all seriousness taken, and uh, and our NCOs didn't want you, you know, they were like suddenly change approach, everything. You know, they try to make some impression of leading... There were different leading officers, so that's one of the reasons. But we had, like, I think there were Russians as well, observers on this exercise. So maybe that's the reason why we had to, you know, suddenly do everything proper, serious way. Everything by the book. 
Yes, yes, but you you see, it's 1988, and we have Russian, you know, Soviet observers within army. You know how we're doing, and they had, you know, final word. Did you work with any of the other Warsaw Pact countries, or was it just really the Russians that you uh, had dealings with? Oh, we we dealt with quite a lot with Russians in uh, where there was our NCO school, uh, uh, Radiocom school, uh, Legnica, because Legnica was headquarters of Russian group Army North, as I remember, and there were plenty of Russians, and they have as well a Radiocom school there, or a unit. So on many occasions we actually ended up on the field ex- not together but some exchange uh, parts uh, our let's say barracks or garrison where the school was was uh, next door to Russian one it was just literally a wall brick wall you know behind the brick wall was Russian part <laughs> so in sometimes with these chaps uh, I think it was unit who was serving. There was uh, Russian uh, airfield as well, so they were serving on the airfield uh, communication. So, uh, because the equipment was very similar in uh, long range, especially long long range, was quite you know same. So, if we lacking of any parts or something, we used to go there asking them if they have any, you know. Uh, for servicing, uh, I remember going you know, to Russian next door garrison, uh, asking for some, uh, let's say Vanya or whatever you know Russian name, uh, because the, and he he knows he has this logistic you know in my in some storage he has these tubes we need one, and on a piece of paper he just write them off or something you know, and we got them. But it was first few phone calls, you know, to organize this. Our, you know, uh, leading master of school. I mean, there was like, uh, in terms of teacher, you know, but he was NCO. So he used to organize. Oh, guys, I just spoke with the Russian. You go there on particular time because it was on a gate. You have to be on particular time. I, now I'm, when I'm talking about this, I think it was quite kind of stealing from Russian, you know, uh, storage, you know, because he was writing off the the Russian bloke who was responsible. He was writing off tubes. I remember tubes especially uh, as broken or whatever. And then a particular time, let's say quarter past five, uh, at this time at this gate, we're gonna you know do a deal. So he was handing over us these tubes. They always request something else, and we used to bring, and you know, fitting tubes, then tuning stuff, working. Our you know commandant uh, was happy like hell because we are oh, another two piece of equipment now working, and you know he he can just put in the report that you know we we successfully you know repair this. Were you ever? instructed what to do if you were captured by NATO forces, what information you could give them? No, we, we didn't have any training about this. 
but uh, there was from political officer on the beginning uh, when we were talking about this chain command, you know, when we move movement uh, towards west. And uh, alloc because it was uh, more like being how we, we're going to be allocated in the future in case of war broke out and what's going to happen. And it was like 15 minutes about uh, what what it could be if we were captured and we were talking only about rank and service number. That's all. Uh, and obviously uh, damage stuff before it falls in a uh, hands or uh, not an enemy. So destroy your code books and damage the equipment so it can't be used? Damage equipment, yes. And uh, uh, specifically, we had the specifics because some people don't realize that they are very easy way to completely make this use equipment. You don't need to burn everything. You don't need to, you know, explode. I think just there are particular parts, especially with radios, but you can just uh, take it away or something, and it's rendering completely useless. So we knew, you know, we were on each part of equipment as well. We were uh, trained how to make it completely rendered without much effort or, you know, without using grenade, but your brain, uh, that, 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 that way. You mentioned Legnitsa before, the big Russian garrison town, and this was right next to your base as well. The, the Soviet base was right next to your base, was it? Legnitsa, from my point of view, was very specific and important when we're talking about this town first. I, uh, my family and I lived and I was born just 10 miles away from Legnica. Uh, Legnica is a uh, quite, was big town city, uh, today size of 200,000 uh, citizens, you know, living there. So it's quite big. And at that time it was the same amount. But specifics of Legnica was in 1945, just after the Second World War finished, uh, Soviets decided to set up there in Legnica uh, one of the command center of the Russian occupying forces for Germany and for uh, Poland. So it became headquarters for for Soviet forces for Poland. They used to call it Army Group North, I think. Germany was Army Group West, so yeah, we had Army Group North, and it was proper headquarters uh, with all centers, all center of communication, of logistics for all Soviet forces in Poland. And on the top, there were uh, loads of high-ranking staff, Soviets, living in Legnica with their families. And they decided to like in Berlin, they divide Legnica in half. Former German town was divided in half and with wall as well, like in Germany. And behind the wall, Legnica is like smaller Berlin, you know, copy of of Berlin of the time. Because uh, the Russian quarter was uh, surrounded by the wall 
and there was living quarters. They were about some historians even today uh, estimated it was nearly hundred thousand people. You know, Russians living there behind the wall, uh, military and civilian staff. And other half of the town was Polish, but with Polish, uh, let's say Polish part, uh, there was like one third as well military garrison, which including there were uh, some uh, hospital, there was especially communication radio uh, forces, which I was serving. So uh, I can, you know, uh, and our part of barracks was like next door to the Russian, but uh, I still remember there's walls, you know, uh, across the town with gates, with uh, checkpoints, Russian checkpoints, which was literally like you see in Berlin. Uh, and uh, there was lots of Polish people who lived in Legnica, but who were working in the Russian quarter. But they had to carry with them a special pass. Uh, they were always on a checkpoint search, you know, to pass through for their work and and back. So it was a really important, you know, a place. Uh, even on a, when you have railway station in Legnica, it was only one, and it was po in Polish uh, part. But there were a special platform. Uh, only uh, for Russian, uh, for Soviets. And you cannot go on this uh, platform uh, unless you are a Soviet uh, soldier with a special pass or something. It was, And from that platform, there was uh, running twice a day uh, direct trains to Moscow. Uh, so well, I used to travel, you know, because... My mom worked in uh, some time in like you know, uh, for some sort of period of time. I was like you know to my military, well NCO school, so in the train as well from my my town Yavor, and we just you know uh, train just stop on the platform, and next platform was the Russian, and the train to Moscow was ready, all uh, boarding with lots of Russians, and I mean. Yeah, Russians and uh, military uh, Soviets, you know, boarding on. As you're getting into 1989, how is the army changing with, for example, the electoral success of Solidarity? Does that have any impact on the way you see the army changing at that point? I would say discipline within army falls much lower. I mean, slug. I mean, relax. It's not relax is very wrong way uh, to describe, but uh, lack of discipline in a lower, especially levels. On the high ranks, you could see this waiting for the outcome. What's gonna happen? How is gonna happen? Out. Uh, it was more like waiting a game, uh, but army hasn't changed on this conscript level for next, let's say, few years. It's a part of political staff, so uh, political officers and all this stuff disappeared soon after. But way of treating uh, conscripts, uh, trainings, everything was carried on for next, I think, two or three years. Uh, so army in general hasn't changed for the next 
few years, good few years. And still with a, a view that the West is a threat? No. Uh, this very quickly disappeared. Reason why no one believed even in late 80s. You know, it was uh, like uh, talking about when we have this political uh, lectures, everyone, you know, just could laugh, really. No one believed this 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 thing. We we did understand that if war broke out, we might end up in Germany as a second wave. But uh, that, yeah, that was quite real. But in terms of uh, that NATO is a threat uh, in this. So 89, 90, this is gone. There was no any offensive. Army become more like defensive one. I guess the worry was that the Russians wouldn't leave or would come back. Yeah. Till they leave Poland, uh, army was like carry on. Without this edge, without this, you know, anti-NATO uh, propaganda, but they were carrying on the same system, uh, the same trainings, the same military structure. Till we had Soviet in Poland, and when they withdraw in '92, then I think some kind of reforms has started on uh, many levels, but. Till then, till they literally withdraw, army. I, I remember army hasn't changed because I left eighty nine. I had friends who were in ninety one or ninety two, and when we spoke, and we just like the same. We're talking about the same story. A part of this political bullshit. I used to, you know, hear nothing. You know, the same uh, some silly trainings which we were. We, we already knew they were used pointless. They still were carried on and all this. When you look back at your career in the Polish People's Army, how do you view that now? Hard to say career. I'm, I'm really... joking. That was a bit tongue Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you see, you see, from one hand, from the, you know, I really... Uh, I didn't like this term, uh, what I, you know, uh, time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as well, I appreciate and I found lots of laughs when I remember that how, ba- how bad army we were, yeah. you know, how useless army we were. It just like makes you really laugh, smiling. And then, oh, it, and then you just think, no, it wasn't bad. It was quite fun because we did loads of, Opposite. Well, we we did loads of stuff. You're supposed to not, you know. In terms of discipline, we were absolutely appalling. Uh, it, it, it just uh, you wouldn't do in professional army whatsoever. And but we had to serve. So this, if you have six months to you know to serve, you're trying to find how the easiest way is to spend this time, you know, not conflicting. Somehow, it reminds me uh, the Czech novel of uh, Schweik. Uh, yeah, the good soldier Schweik. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, we were kind of this. <laughs> we were that kind of army, really. Yeah. So you were you were almost like pretending to do the job. Oh yeah, but but not really doing it. Look, make yourself look busy. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, we did. Uh, we did pretend, especially when we had. Uh, I can't remember R one hundred eight or something uh, radio station, which was like backpack. You know, you you could have it. It's uh, ultra short wave. Uh, radio station, uh, analog, no, no any uh, encryption or, or something. It was close communication on the battle, battlefield, really, stuff uh, on short range. And we had to pretend, uh, especially in the summertime on exercise, uh, three times, I think. Uh, they were bulky, they were heavy, uh, uh, not really nice to carry on. And uh, so we used to, teams between each other, uh, we used to agree what uh, sort of reports we're going to send each other uh, on a you know piece of paper. And then instead of carrying the massive batteries, you know, in them, in this radio station, so like you have, like you have, let's say, tourist backpack on your back and half loaded with uh, proper batteries, you know, car batteries. So like for it was heavy. So instead of these batteries, we used to uh, have alcohol, you know, bottles of alcohol or beer, and just only two, only one set to keep working in case some, you know, gonna uh, call us or something. But then in a field, we have already reports, you know, agreed. So we put in the books what we did, and then uh, next few hours enjoy your sun, you know, summertime. That kind of army. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwallconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.